Um, just to do some quick review, uh, just some quick review. We have been 13 weeks now in the Gospel of Mark, and we're about a, almost a quarter of the way through. And so uh, I wanted just to step back and real quick look at a couple big picture things, because I don't want to assume that all of you have been to all of the times and have listened to all the sermons online and things like that. So let me just give a quick review of some things, some basics. We talk about the Gospels. There's four Gospels. Um, kids, anyone under the age of 10, what, does anybody know what the four Gospels are? Kylie. <laughs> she goes like this. Anybody else? Oh, she didn't know. She, oh, she knows what they are. Okay. Well, she, she answered quietly in her mind, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Good job, Kylie. Nice work on that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's these four Gospels. Now, Gospels are, are different than any other kind of literature that we have. You know, normally there is, there's history literature, there's wisdom literature, there's poetry, there's biography. Well, a Gospel is really written uh, more as a news bulletin or a newspaper. It's almost best if it's read in its entirety and it's read out loud, but we won't do that this morning. It is a good thing if you ever wanted to just sit down and read through a gospel out loud. Uh, it would be it'd be pretty awesome. It'd take you about an hour or so to do that. Uh, but yeah, it's a gospel. It's meant to be read out loud as a news bulletin. Now we have four of them. You might ask, well, why do we have four of these gospels? No, a gospel means good news. And it's the telling of the good news. And it means the telling of the good news of Jesus specifically. So why do we have four of these? There's been a lot of different reasons that people have described why we would have four Gospels. Some say, well, it's kind of like um, all four of these Gospels are at an intersection, and they're watching the events that take place at the intersection, and each Gospel writer is looking at the same events from a different vantage point. And that's true. Um, that, is, that is true. We could look at it that way because every writer has a specific bent, and they yet tell, are telling the same story. Uh, but when we look at the Gospels, the four Gospels, and we think just in terms of like when someone famous passes away, there are some stages of the development of their character that take place in the public setting. So normally when someone famous will die, uh, the first stage that they go through is you talk about what that person did. So most commonly in our culture, it would be like an obituary. You have an obituary that just kind of tells about what the person did. And then shortly thereafter, you have people that will write or um, put together a presentation on the famous person about what they would say, uh, things that they would say. They would look kind of their life work and embody their whole life work. So that's stage one is what they did. Stage two is like what they said or um, what their message was. And then the third stage, which will happen oftentimes when someone famous dies, is you'll look, at, you'll look at them as a person. Like, what made that person tick? What was, what was the thing that motivated them, that drove them? And when you, you take that kind of framework in mind, the Gospels kind of address each of those, those things here as well. And so we have Mark. Mark says basically what Jesus did. Mark is the shortest of the four messages that talk about the life of Jesus and he really was focused primarily on what Jesus did not solely but primarily Matthew and Luke focus mainly on what Jesus said that's why Matthew and Luke are, are long the longest of the two and you have more of Jesus's teachings more of his parables uh, in those two and then when you get to the gospel of John which oftentimes becomes many people's favorite gospel especially older Christians um, you, you really look at who Jesus was, what it was that made Jesus tick. You get kind of an intimate look into the life and the heart of Jesus. 
So that's kind of the a big picture of why we, why we have four Gospels. And now let's look at kind of who the audiences were of these four Gospels. You have two intended audiences generally of the Gospels. Um, the first audience are believers. These are people that have, have given themselves to the cause of Christ. And Matthew, the book of Matthew, is primarily written to young believers. Uh, so the book of Matthew is actually a really good book for those that are new to the faith to go through because you have some basic fundamental teachings about how this new kingdom of God system works. You have the, the Beatitudes, you've got all of these parables, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, and all of these things that are laid out real quick, clearly in the book of Matthew. Now, a John is normally for older Christians. Later in John, I believe it's chapter 20, I've got it in your notes there if you're filling out, um, it's later on in John, he basically goes on and says, um, these things are written so that you who have believed might continue to go on believing, and it will help you mature in your faith. So John was written to help encourage uh, those who have been walking with Jesus for a long time to continue faithfully in that relationship and that fellowship. Now we come to, we come to Mark and Luke, primarily these would be written for an audience of, of unbelievers, or another way to look at it is Gentile believers, they, or Gentile people, and some of those Gentiles are believers. Now, I, I don't want to go into the whole history of Gentile and non-Gentile, but basically a Gentile is someone that doesn't, doesn't follow Jewish customs and doesn't get the whole religious system of that particular day. And so Mark and Luke are, are aimed at a Gentile audience. So it's kind of surprising. Oftentimes when someone's interested in learning more about the faith, uh, Christians will say, well, read the Gospel of John. Well, um, it's not like that would be a bad direction to send somebody. I mean, you're sending them to a Gospel. But, but really, if we want to look at it, what's going to be most um, effective for someone that's wanting to investigate the faith, it would be to send them to the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of Luke um, because they're mostly designed for those that aren't yet committed themselves to following Jesus. So, so those, that's just kind of the big picture. I told you we'd go over a little bit of review. I won't, I won't go into too much more, but why do we choose Mark specifically? Um, one, it's because it's the shortest gospel. Two, because I feel like it will really help us stay focused on what our mission is as a church. And I try in every sermon and every time I talk with you um, to, to talk about what is our purpose, what is our mission. And, um, and it's this, it's to reach with the gospel those that are near to us but far from Christ. That's why we're here as a church, if we just boil it down. We're not just trying to reach people to, to gather a big crowd of people so that everyone has all of their, their needs met. We want to reach out to people because we believe that we have this treasure hidden in earthen vessels, the treasure of the good news of Christ, and that is at the core of everything that we need to live life to its, to its fullest, most, most um, ex extreme, as, as we have a biblical worldview would go. So that's one of the reasons why um, that we would reach with the gospel those that are near to us but far from Christ, and, and Mark will kind of help us do it. There's a bunch of other reasons, but let's just move on to our text today. Um, so, politics, religion, these are two areas that seem to provide um, opinions from every angle that you look at. Almost everybody has an opinion on issues of politics, on issues of religion, and oftentimes those things are banned in certain contexts, in certain places, in certain homes, in certain places of business. And rightfully so, because it can get kind of 
ugly or kind of hostile um, and unhealthy in the conversations. Well, today what we're going to do is we're going to look at three opinions from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35 that Abigail read so awesomely earlier. Uh, and we're going to look at three opinions that, that really, there are three opinions that every single person, whether they would agree with this statement or not, according to a, a biblical worldview, every person makes a choice upon which of these opinions of Jesus they choose to believe. Every, every person alive, according to, you might say, well, I don't really have an opinion at all. Well, that is an opinion that falls under one of our opinions. <laughs> so, so you actually do, um, if, if you're saying I don't have an opinion at all. So we're going to look here at these, th- these three particular opinions. And, and, um, and so if you've, got, if you've got notes, the first opinion uh, comes right in the first couple verses, and it's this, that, that Jesus, this guy Jesus, he has gone crazy. He's gone mad. He's lost his mind. He's not to be paid attention to. Uh, And we can look here at verses 20 and 21. It says, Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that that he and his disciples were not even able to eat a meal. When his family heard about this, this is Jesus' immediate family. When Jesus' family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said that this... He is, he is absolutely out of his mind. Now, Jesus had been teaching in the church, in the synagogue, uh, the Jewish church of that day. And he's, he's doing all kinds of stuff. Um, he's healing crippled people. He's casting out demons. He's forgiving sins. And because of this, word begins to attract people from all over the place, from, from as far south as like 175 miles away, north, east, west. People in the tens of thousands are converging on this little place of Galilee because they want uh, they want an interaction with Jesus. They want a need to be met. They want to be healed. They want to be uh, touched in some, in some way to bring about a change in their life. And as they're doing this, there's this increased popularity. And some of Jesus' family members are kind of thinking, what's going on? I mean, what's going on with our big brother who we grew up with? Uh, they're not fully bought into the fact that he's the Messiah. And, and they're, they're thinking, he's just kind of lost his mind. And, and, and it's because the size of crowds oftentimes left Jesus and his buddies in very um, uncomfortable and even dangerous positions. Last week we, we looked at how Jesus had to prepare a getaway boat because the people were crushing in on him and his disciples. And so he tells a few of his disciples, prepare a boat so that if the people get too crazy, we can jump in the boat and give a little bit of distance to ourselves just kind of for a safety. So they've got this going on. And then this week we see that these huge crowds of people were so full and so desperate that his disciples, and I'm guessing Jesus too, couldn't even have a proper meal. They couldn't get a little bit of time just to eat a meal to take care of themselves because the demands, the people were coming in and crowding them, and and it was causing quite a bit of stir. And so, so anyway, these crowds, they immediately follow, and they were so extent that the disciples are unable to even have this particular meal so his family his his mom and brothers they travel to see him now they come from this place called nazareth which is down here this news that they hear they got a twitter feed or something and it came from capernaum that jesus is doing all this stuff and they decide to make a trek if you see here it according to great old google it would take 10 hours and 16 minutes to walk from nazareth along that dotted route to capernaum So it must have been serious enough. They must have thought that this issue was serious enough to where they would make a 10-hour trip to go see Jesus and to, as they would say, intervene or rescue Jesus maybe even from 
himself. They came to take, take charge of him because they were concerned about his well-being. Now, this might be because they knew him. They knew him growing up as a, as a humble guy that was just a, was a carpenter. And now they see him hanging out with tax collectors, who were bad people of that day, hanging out with prostitutes, making friends with, oh no, sinful people. And they, they see him uh, flipping traditions of religion on its head. And they may even at this point hear that, as we heard a few, few about a chapter ago, that the religious and the political people were plotting to kill Jesus. So they, they're worried most likely about his, his well-being. So they, they come in here to, to take care of him, to, to rescue him from, from this, different, this, this difficult thing. And, um, and so this isn't uncommon. The Apostle Paul, who wrote, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, we have an Old Testament and a New Testament, Paul wrote about two-thirds of the New Testament, and he got himself into a situation very much like this. Uh, he was a persecutor of Christians, it was his job. He prided himself in the fact that he made Christians' lives miserable. He even, in, in, in some senses, oversaw their, their execution. He prided himself of this, but something happened. He came to know Christ. And when he came to know Jesus, he did a 180. His life radically changed. It changed so much that he got arrested for following Christ. And his life was in danger. And so the, the, the governors of Jerusalem said, we need to get you out of here, otherwise you're going to get killed by the, the, the prisoners and people crowding in. And so he sends them off to Caesarea, which is 75 miles away, and they imprisoned him there for two years. And in those two years, he spends a lot of time loving on people, sharing the gospel, and he finally gets a voice before the governor of that area at his trial. And as he's given this, this um, testimony, he starts talking about starts talking about how Christ has changed his life, and he used to be this, this guy that l loved to hurt Christians, and now he's become one because of the, the message of the gospel, the good news. He was, he was reached by the gospel, uh, and now he's wanting to proclaim that message to, to everyone else. And when he got to the point where he talked about Jesus and what Jesus has done, and how Jesus has rescued him, and how Jesus rose from the dead, Festivus, the governor, says in Acts 26, verse 24, he says, you are out of your mind, Paul. You, same exact phrasing that is used about Jesus here. You're out of your mind, Paul. You were a great learner and great thinker, but now that is driving you to the point of insanity. Paul went on in that passage to describe how he was as sane as he ever has been in his entire life. Um, now, I, I don't know about you, but for me, um, as the young guy, I'll just say late middle school. I don't want to don't want to give too many details, but um, and I would have probably worded this different if I knew all the kids were going to be in here. Um, so how do I how do I adjust some of my terminology? Uh, so so basically, um, I'm, I'm middle school age, and after after. Uh, football practice on a regular basis, especially on Fridays, um, me and my buddies, we, we would um, leave practice and, and we would do a couple things. One of those things is we would stop by um, the local thriftway, which is no longer there anymore. Uh, we'd stop by the local thriftway grocer and we would try to buy them out of all of their toilet paper and all of their um, eggs. And um, we also would have paper sacks and um, we would go to one of my friend's house, and back in those days, it was pre-internet days, but there were, there were um, materials that one of their dads had that 
that uh, as middle school boys we shouldn't have been looking at, but we would look at these things. And, um, and then those e that evening, normally Friday evening, we would go out and we would terrorize the neighborhood. We would normally pick someone that we didn't like, and we would find their particular house, and we would paint it in white teepee, and we would color it with white and gold specks. And, um, and then we would, the worst icing on the cake is we would fill up paper bags, you've heard this, I'm sure, with um, dog excrement, put it on the front porch, light it on fire, ring the doorbell, and then run back and hide and watch what would happen. And um, week after week, it was, there's nothing quite like watching someone come out of their door and try to stomp out a paper bag that's on fire, you know. Yep, that's me. So um, it was about this point in time when I'm in ninth, when I'm in ninth grade, and I got, um, there were some kids in the youth group, older kids, that were bugging me to come to a youth retreat, and I just really had no interest, but I finally ended up going to this youth retreat, and it was at that point in time where my heart got absolutely captured with Jesus. And I had been going to church my whole life, and I knew that the stuff I was doing was bad and wrong, but, you know, it was also what you did. And so, um, but at this point in time, I felt conviction of the Holy Spirit that, shocker, this wasn't appropriate behavior for someone that was following Christ. And so, um, so I stopped going after football practice, and you kind of get where this is going. Um, I got called all kinds of funny things from my, from my buddies uh, because I wouldn't participate in the things, and they started calling me names and different stuff like that. Um, and one of those things was, they didn't call me crazy, but I know they thought it. They thought, oh, he's, Bill's just become a Jesus freak. And, and that's just kind of the way, the way things went um, for, for, quite, well, for quite some time. I was a little bit of a loner after that for a while um, at school. But that's okay. Um, that's okay. But I guess the, the point is here is, in some ways, when, when a person commits their life to Christ, I give you a story in ninth grade, but it's the same for those of us who are older that give our lives to Christ. We start acting differently. We, we, see, we see things different. We see things through a loving, graceful uh, perspective. And things that we maybe have been hard towards at one point earlier in our life, God has softened our hearts. And we can, we can love on someone that we, in, in earlier days, um, would, have, would have TP'd or something along those lines. Uh, or at least emotionally TP'd, uh, which... Anyway, you get what I'm saying, right? So as, as, we, as we follow Christ, um, this, this kind of happens. And it leads me to this question that I just want to ask you. Um, because a lot of you have been Christians the whole of your life, or a lot of it. And you come to church each week, and hopefully you're encouraged in your faith. Um, but I want to ask this question. Could, could you, could I be accused of being a bit crazy because of my devotion to Christ? Could someone accuse me of that? Could I be convicted in a court of law for being a little bit wacky? Um, because I, I buck the norms of society to, to radically shower the love and grace of Jesus to the world around me. Um, now, in this context, it might have been within my own family in which that, that um, accusation could have come from, but it could come from a lot of different, a lot of different ways. I want to also, as, as a church, as a whole, as we think about this, and we think about these young kids that are here, that are growing up, um, these kids are going to grow up. And because they have sensitive hearts to, to the Lord, they're going to want to do some things within our church that to us as older Christians and leaders might seem a little bit, well, that's a little bit out there. Um, I would just really hope, I would really hope that we would have an environment in here that allows for 
leaps of faith to be taken, especially amongst uh, those that are coming up, but also amongst us, that we would encourage one another to step out in faith, to pursue, to pursue a, in some senses, maybe as a book that Mike Alcanelli wrote years ago called Messy Christianity. We're willing to push the edges of the norm, uh, to push the edges of tradition for the purpose of loving people with the good news of Christ. And, and I think oftentimes the, the, young, the, the young ones among us help push, help drive that amongst those of us that are a little bit older. And, and I want for us as a church to really be open. I had someone visit the office this week that said that they, they basically got pushed out of a church because uh, they had started a ministry. Actually, it was, it was a young gal who had started a ministry. And uh, when it started to, to kind of develop, it wasn't going in the direction that some of the, the church leadership wanted to go, and they basically squashed it. And that really affected negatively this, this person's walk with Christ, because they were trying to step out in faith, and they just got squashed. And I just never want to be that kind of church. So let's just be careful that when, when those that are coming around us want to leap out in faith, that we say, like the song that we just sung, uh, we allow them to, to rise above the, the waves and keep their eyes focused on Christ. So, first opinion, he is a, um, a bit crazy. That's what his family had thought. He's, he's kind of lost his mind. The second opinion is the largest section of verses here in our, in our passage, and it is, he is a liar. He is a liar. Not only um, does his family think that he is losing his mind, the religious people thought that he was a liar. And let's look at this. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him, and he began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. If Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up, and then he can plunder the strong man's house. So uh, we'll, we'll stop there for just a quick minute. But as Christ is performing miracles and doing all these great deeds, there's lots of people that are, are choosing to follow him, um, choosing not to say he is a, a liar, um, choosing not to say he is a, a crazy guy, um, and, and yet, there were some religious people, and these, these religious people were, were saying that Jesus, it, by the fact that we just read, that Jesus is like Satan himself, um, and by Satan's power, he's doing all these miracles. Now, a couple fun things to look at when we, we look at verse 22. At the top of verse 22, it says, And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. There's two quick points I want to I note here real quick. Notice here that he says, he's, right here it says, uh, he came down from Jerusalem. So here's a picture of Jerusalem. Um, and Jerusalem's down here in the south. And it says there that the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem. So he came down from Jerusalem right there to Capernaum, but he went north to go down. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But what I want us to do, this is just a little teaching for those that like to get into Bible study. We have to understand the context from which we read things. We are Western-minded thinkers, and we also live in a culture where there's things called automobiles. And, and so when we go from point A to point B, we think north, south, east, west. But when you go back here, so for example, 
when, if we say we have to go to Amboy from Yakult, we say, I'm going to go up to Yamboy because Amboy's north of us, right? So here's Amboy. It's eight miles, nine-minute drive, or four miles. It's north of us. When we think about, when you think about um, the bigger picture here, look at this. Amboy is technically at 250 feet above sea level. Yakult is technically 700 feet above sea level. So um, we technically are going down to Amboy if we leave here. We're going down to, yes, we go down to Amboy, even though we're going north. It's the same thing here with Jerusalem. Um, Jerusalem's at 1,500 feet above sea level. Galilee is at minus 650 feet below sea level. So, yes, they're going, they're going down to they're going down to Galilee, even though they're going north to Galilee. And, and so that's just kind of one, of, one thing when, we, when you read the Bible, you think that doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, it does make sense because, trust me, if you have to walk um, from Amboy to Yakult, you'll realize that even though you're going south, you're going up. When you ride your bike or walk somewhere, where they had to walk everywhere, so everything was based on ups and downs and things like that. Now, more importantly than that, the second thing I want you to notice is that these religious people, you wonder how much pressure Jesus was under? He was under a lot of pressure. Um, these religious guys, they came down from Jerusalem. They had to go, it was a 35-hour trip to go up to Capernaum, and they went up there, and they were going up there for the sole purpose to come against Jesus. Um, you think that if someone's going to commit themselves that much, they, they're, they're bent on destroying this guy, Jesus. And the teachers of the law were unwilling to acknowledge that he was the Christ, that he was the Savior of the world. Now, um, when we're in a place where we're living for Christ, um, there are going to be people that, that oppose us. There's going to be people that would claim uh, that uh, we uh, have false motives. They, they, a lot of times I hear people say, oh, Christians are just all about money. Um, Christians, they're, they're hypocrites. Uh, they, they can't be trusted. And I think, well, first off, they don't know all of you because you're just all wonderful people that are perfect. Um, no, we're not perfect people. I think we've talked about that extent. We're, we're simply forgiven people. But um, when we as people of Christ are going to be accused of being narrow-minded, being closed-minded. Uh, Jesus even said in John 15, he said, you know, when the world, when you notice that they hate you, just remember, they hated me first. And, and, um, and so living for Christ means that you're going to have those people that come in opposition against you, but the way that you respond to them is what's important. And, and that's what we look at here. When Jesus was, when Jesus was approached um, by, um, by these false teachers who would come this way, notice that he didn't flip out. He didn't cuss them out. He didn't flip out. Um, he simply used wisdom. He used logic. He used understanding to dis dismantle the fact that they that their argument held no water. I mean, it's a basic fact that if, if he was from, from Satan himself, why would he be working against himself? That has no end game in mind. And, and really, these religious leaders, they, they had so narrowly focused their, their anger at dismantling Jesus that they were missing what was obvious to everybody else. I mean, they watched people's hands grow. I mean, there's, people are seeing... Uh, people being fed and people being healed and demons being cast out. They're seeing all the proof and evidence of this, and these Pharisees just refuse to believe the truth of that right in front of them. So now I'm kind of jumping on to verses 28 and 30, which is I'm not going to spend a lot of time going into this um, because I really think that it gets pulled out of perspective too often with Christian folks. But even though there's these religious leaders, they have this accusation, Jesus kind of comes back at them with a very truthful statement, and he says it in verses 
verses 28 through 30, says, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty upon the eternal sin. Now, as we look at this here, um, commentary after commentary, scholar after scholar, will say virtually the same thing, and I believe they say it right. They're saying that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, it, it, it is in its nature an eternal sin, for if one rejects the evidence that's given by the Holy Spirit and ascribes that evidence to Satan, he's obviously rejecting the evidence upon which faith can be based. And without faith, there's no forgiveness of sin. That's Matthew Henry commentary. Um, now, the, the big question here for a lot of Christians that I hear from, from you is that I'm just concerned that in a, in a season of backsliding that I've committed the unforgivable sin, that I have grieved the Holy Spirit, that I have denied the Holy Spirit. And, and just let me say clearly from Scripture, this is not talking about a, a one-time willful event. This is talking about a pattern of denial of the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of demons. Uh, so, that being said, if a person thinks, well, man, I wonder, I mean, I, I lived a pretty rough life, or I had a season of my life where I got on drugs, or, or you know, and, and I said some things that, that um, I should never have said, and I'm worried that I've committed this unforgivable sin, you need to know, you need to know that that is not being directed at you. That is not talking to you specifically. Um, if you have a concern in your heart that maybe you've committed this sin, you haven't committed it. You have not committed the sin. Uh, because, because someone that has committed the sin could care less. Could care less if they hurt God or not because they don't believe him. They don't believe in the Holy Spirit. They don't believe in this way of salvation. So, so you, you just need to be rest assured that this isn't un, you and you're wondering, hmm, I think Satan uses this against us, um, making us feel like, oh, if we wonder if God's grace is good enough for us, then then we're, then we're in big trouble. And, and that's why I'll tell my story a lot here throughout the course of the year of how, as a youth pastor, I ended up in a drunk tank and how Satan tries to use that against me. And I learned a lot through that, and I would never do that again, Lord willing. Um, but the, the point is God's grace is enough for us, and, and we need to not be concerned with so much. And that's where it comes down to this last point here, with the third point. And kids, you're being awesome. I'm shocked that I wouldn't be as awesome as you are if I had to sit here and listen to me. So thirdly, thirdly here is um, third opinion, he is my Lord. That is a third opinion. It says in verses 31 through 35, Jesus' mother and brothers arrive. So they've made it from their, their Nazarene trip. They're standing outside. They sent someone in to Jesus to call him. And a crowd was sitting around. And they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mothers and my brothers, Jesus says. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, and he said, Here are my mothers and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother and my brother. So um, what is he talking about here? From the outside looking in, it just looks like Jesus is totally dissing his family members, like he, he's just pushing them aside. And that's really not what's happening. Something much more profound is being said by Christ here that we need to get. And it has nothing to do with dissing his family members. What he is saying here is that the only relationship that really matters, the only relationship that really is eternal is not a physical relationship. It is a spiritual relationship. And you've got to remember, he's got thousands of people that are coming, and they want to be touched, they want to be healed, they want to be fed, they want to be forgiven. Um, but most of them, not, not, not forgiven, most of them just want 
like we talked about last week, they want to be fixed, but they don't want change. They want, they want their circumstances to be worked over, but they don't want really a difference in the way that they live their life. And what Jesus is saying here is, it's not, a, it's not a physical relationship which should be priority in our life. It is, instead, it is a spiritual relationship. And he says it in Matthew chapter 6. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. This is the primary focus of, of someone's life when their Lord is, is serving and loving and walking closely with Christ. Um, that's primarily what, what he's, he's focusing at. But sometimes it is, it is good-meaning people that can deter us from that that direction Um, one last thing and we'll we'll close up with this verses 34 and 35 again it says it says here um, he looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said here are my mothers and my brothers whoever does God's will is my mother is my brother is my sister he's talking here about the faith family he's talking here about the importance of of us he's talking here about the church the local church, the gathering of people. Now, we're not sitting in a circle that would, it would, it, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't fit like that. Um, but it is talking about the family of God and how important the family of God is. And, and we know this because some of us come from incredibly dysfunctional families. Um, dysfunctional families, broken homes. We've missed the experience of having healthy relationships with inside a, a family atmosphere. Um, we don't know what it looks like to have a norm when it comes to this. And, and perhaps that is your situation. Um, there is there's something awesome about having a church family, a place where we get to come and we get to lean on one another and, 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 and encourage one another, especially when um, the world around us doesn't protect that, doesn't encourage that, doesn't share that same vision and that same hope. Um, so last question I'll close out with. Um, who am I connected to in, in spiritual family? At what level beyond just a gathering on a Sunday morning are you connected to someone else here and to another group of people here? We have four women's Bible studies. We've got a couple men's Bible studies. I really have a heart to see some couples' Bible studies get started up um, in, in the near future. Um, we have youth groups and Awanas. We have all these different spiritual communities, but it's so easy, and you can't accomplish. Jesus just had 12. And between between them, he, there was 13 of them. 13 of them, and and so with that, with that, we need small group gatherings of people as well. And uh, where are you connected outside of just this particular church service? It's too easy to go around and have all of these surfacey relationships with people, but never to go deeper, never go beyond that. And so where is that for you? And it, normally it happens in a smaller in a smaller setting than just on a Sunday. So. If you're interested in that, would you please let me know? Because I would love to connect you with, with those groups. Um, living for Christ is not an easy thing. We are constantly going to face opposition as we go through, uh, as we go through our, our life of faith. And people all over the place um, dismiss Christ. Uh, they dismiss him thinking that he's a historical figure that was a good guy. Uh, they say that maybe he was a little bit wacky because of the way that he lived his life. There were others that would say he's just flat out a liar. Um, he isn't who he said he was. He isn't the son of God. Uh, and then there's others, like many of us, who say, no, he's Lord. He's Lord of my life. He's Lord of my life. And, and I would encourage us to think of it this way. There's nothing more sane. There's nothing more sane than committing our lives fully to the care of Christ. Because who else would die for us? 
Who else would put themselves on a cross um, to shed their blood for me? Um, to reject that, I think that's more insane than it is to say, I'm going to commit my life forever to follow him um, because really he loves me. My family loves me well. You guys love me well, but um, you haven't shed your blood for me. And, um, and so I'm, some of you would, uh, but, uh, but he has. And uh, I want to encourage us to move that way. So as always, this is, this is your opportunity. We'd love to encourage you to place your faith in Christ. That's what we're all about here. Um, the forgiveness of sin is, is the greatest of all healings. And that's